Yep. I don't mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um, well, I'll just, for my own sake, um, yeah. So. Chairete, Philoi. That is, hello, friends, in Greek. I'm Chad Kim, and this week on A History of Christian Theology, we turn back to the East. We will begin a series of episodes focused on the fount for much of Eastern theology, Origin of Alexandria. As we wanted to continue to keep our conversation open to different voices, we are bringing back our friend Ben Brandon, in addition to our normal contributors Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. For some background on Origen, he was born in the mid-2nd century and died in the mid-3rd century. He spent most of his life in Alexandria and Egypt, teaching and preaching the gospel. Much of his extent work are sermons and commentaries on scripture, which he deeply loved. That being said, our first text will be On First Principles, in which Origen sets out our first systematic theology. From the start of our podcast, we looked at occasional letters like those from Ignatius and Clement of Rome, then we looked at apologies like those from Justin and Athenagoras, and finally we looked at works written against heretics like those of Irenaeus and Tertullian. With Origen, we get a more complete treatise that is not primarily concerned with speaking to a community of Christians or against a specific opposing thinker. While Origen wrote voluminously, history has only passed on some of his writings. He was declared a heretic in the 6th century for his belief that souls existed before they were in bodies and a misconception that he believed in reincarnation. He is not a saint in the West, but is still a doctor or father of the faith in Roman Catholicism. Throughout our treatment of him, we will be looking at his various views and whether or not we find them to be heretical. Origen was heavily influenced by Platonic philosophy and his view that we must ascend to God in our rational souls. He was a thoroughly committed believer in God and his son Jesus Christ, who he believed to be God and man and bodily resurrected. For those reasons and many more, he is well worth reading without being rejected simply as a heretic. I hope you enjoy this week's discussion. Check us out on Facebook.com slash A History of Christian Theology. Now here's our podcast. Okay. Yeah. Well, I wanted to set out from the outset. Um, so we're reading Origins on First Principles, um, and he set, he has a preface to Book One, which he takes to be the standard uh, beliefs of a Christian, basically. So this is going to look something like the rule of faith. Um, he does call it an unmistakable rule in chapter two of the preface. Um, and for just as there are many Greeks and barbarians who promise us the truth, we give up seeking it for all who claim it for false opinions. We have come to believe that Christ was the son of God. And then he goes on and basically what he cites looks much like what we've seen in Irenaeus and Tertullian. It's sort of a summary of scripture. It's kind of like what will become the apostles and Nicene's creeds. Um, this is chapter four, and he talks about God who, was, who created, um, and then again, Christ Jesus came to earth, being made man, took a body like our body, born of a virgin, uh, born and suffered in truth, not merely in appearance, rose from the dead, and then the Holy Spirit. Um, and basically, to me, I just want to set this out because, you know, here we're really getting a systematic theology. So sometimes people will talk about a systematic theology and an origin thinks that this is um, this is what you must believe when you're doing a systematic theology. These are sort of beyond question um, for him. So, any any thoughts on how he sets out his like basic principles, his preface, and he's going to go on to extrapolate about a lot of different things. But this stuff is undeniable. 
no Christian can proceed without believing some of these things. Well, I don't want to always bring this stuff back up, but I couldn't help it just because it's all right here. He includes in this chat something we argued about two episodes ago when in number eight, he says, then finally the scriptures were written by the spirit of God and have a meaning, not such only as is apparent at first sight, but also which escapes the notice of most. And then he skips down and he references the doctrine of Peter, which is an apocryphal book that was written. And he goes in which the savior seems to say to his disciples, I am not an incorporeal demon, which I don't even know what the context is there. I don't know what he's referencing, but he goes, I have to reply in the first place that that work is not included among ecclesiastical books. We can show that it was not composed either by Peter or by any other person inspired by the spirit. And then, actually, that ties into something he says over in chapter 3, kind of at the beginning, when he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He, uh, he says here, speaking again about the Scripture, he says, And uh, we, however, in conformity with our belief in that doctrine, which we assuredly hold to be divinely inspired, believe that it is possible in no other way to explain and bring within the reach of human knowledge this higher and diviner reason as the Son of God, then by means of those, and then this is kind of the key phrase for me, scriptures alone, which were inspired by the Holy Spirit, that is, the Gospels and the Epistles, the Law and the Prophets, according to the Declaration of Christ himself. And of course, he quotes extensively from the New Testament. So I think it's interesting that we have here in this rule of faith that he lists, um, again, this view of, of the Bible as being the, the only divinely inspired, authoritative, it includes the Gospels, it includes the letters, and it's included as a general rule of faith. So just to look at those things, because it was apropos to an argument we had a couple weeks ago. And not as a piece of rebuttal, but what I think is clear from even what you cited um, is that basically the idea is there's contention, and we sort of talked about this, what becomes theology is contention over what the scripture means. And so I I don't take issue with the fact that he's deriving this from what is scripture, but he says there's a deeper meaning that not everybody sees. Um, And and so part of it, it definitely includes those books, and he has a clear idea of what is scripture. Now, he includes Enoch um, among other books that we, most Protestants, would not consider to be divinely inspired scripture. So even what he takes to be scripture is different from what we take in the present day. Nevertheless, it, I, I don't disagree that it's extremely important, but I think the reason that he feels like he has to write anything is to elucidate what is the, the rule, what is the coordinating idea, what is the main idea within the scriptures that if you're just reading them without this rule, you will misunderstand the point. Yeah. Um, and so I think that, you know, I would still couple with the idea of scripture alone, the right interpretation. Um, What? Well, and and again, this is, you know, this is what theology becomes a wrangling over what is the right interpretation of scripture. And clearly it's done, um, you know, through the use of citing different scriptures. I can give an explanation later for what he means by the incorporeal demon, but. Yeah. Well, so now that for sure, I've always acknowledged that as we read through the authors that we've read through, that they don't use what is the popular approach to inter- scripture interpretation for today. I've always acknowledged that, for sure. That's never been a point of contention on my end. 
For me, the focus here is a couple of things. One, of course, the fact that he says the scripture, meaning the New Testament and Old Testament, is alone inspired by the Holy Spirit in whatever way he's referencing. Now, of course, there is the issue of how to interpret that. Um, and he does at least, he does mention Enoch. I read, I don't know if he mentioned, mentions it multiple times. The time he mentioned it, I need to reread it. Because I remember going, I don't know if it's clear if he includes that in the canon, or if he's including that, or if he's just referencing it. He also, does He does quote the wisdom of Solomon clearly right. as a text. As and a Shepherd of Hermas. What's that? And Shepherd of Hermas. Uh, I wasn't under the impression when he quoted that that it was used. He's He quotes it in the context, again, like, like there are certain things that I would look at and say here he's clearly he says it's he refers to it as scripture he quotes it as authoritative in a certain sense but he also definitely taps into church tradition I don't know that Shepherd of Hermas is being used authoritatively in that sense I'm not saying it's not but it wasn't I thought clearly laid out at the same time let, let me just real quick finish this thought at the same time I'm definitely open to debates amongst the early uh, amongst the fathers as to what counts as scripture. And I'm certainly open. I do know that they, of course, interpret it differently. My thing, which was the point that I was contending with you earlier on, is this notion that the once upon a time, the rule of faith was their, was their Bible. Then the scripture becomes the Bible. And I think that there's an equivocation there of the use of the term rule. I think the rule of faith was meant to be a canon that is a measuring stick by which we can tell whether we're in the faith. Whereas the scripture which will become referenced as canon later, is just, it doesn't mean how to tell whether you're not in the faith. That is, it, they start to use that term because it's the measure of truth. But the notion of scripture has always, as far as I can tell, been roughly similar to what we have. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Just to jump in a bit on this complex uh, canon question, um, the Septuagint is a bit tricky for a lot of reasons, but basically with Origen, we see him, coming from a viewpoint where he's debated a lot of rabbis and part of his tradition in Alexandria is being very comfortable with some different thoughts some different canons. And of course the Hebrew canon does not include what we would call the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanonical books, such as the book of wisdom and, and so forth. Yeah. Um, it seems that what Origen's approach was this is that if he would consider something scripture and for the sake of argument, it seems clear that um, the Septuagint um, to him included the book of wisdom, all that Maccabees, he, that was part of the canon for him. However, he realized there were groups, such as the rabbis, um, and some Christian groups, though a minority in the uh, early church, that did not look at, at the Septuagint as the authoritative text rather than the Hebrew canon. Um, so him realizing that some people did not count these books as authoritative, he then says, I'm not going to use that as an argument because you don't count it as authoritative often, but um, even if he did. And so what he's doing is a bit of a compromise for the sake of his apologetics. And Jerome, in following what Origen was doing implicitly, kind of made the explicit, how should we say, categorization of the Apocrypha. And that's partly why, as uh, Chad mentioned in the Protestant tradition, we followed what Jerome did and being more explicit about what Origen did very subtly, saying, because some don't recognize this, I'm going to kind of not make my foundation on the uh, deuterocanonical or apocryphal books, such as the Book of Wisdom. Which is just good philosophy. When you're arguing with somebody, you want to make sure you have a common ground to stand on. So you don't want to quote from texts that somebody you're arguing with um, might disagree with. I, I just can't help myself. Maybe one way to explain what I take to be the difference between what Tom and I are saying is in the Roman Catholic and Orthodox view of Scripture, Scripture has to be coupled with the correct interpretation from a 
a Reformation-style view of Scripture, the only thing is Scripture alone and the individual conscience and understanding Scripture. And so that's where I, I guess I say that there is a difference in what he's saying because he doesn't just say, if you have the Scriptures, you have all you need. Um, you need more than purely the Scripture itself. And that's why he's writing it all. Um, because if it was just about, hey, here are the books, it's up to you and God, go figure out what the truth is, um, that's not what he's saying. And I'm not, I'm not claiming that Tom's saying that, but it may be helpful to a broader audience. You know, that's kind of how we approach Scripture in, the, in America, in the United States, is it's just kind of like, it's just you, me, Jesus, and the Bible or something. Um, or maybe not even you, it's just me, Jesus, and the Bible. Um, and it almost doesn't matter. Um, because what I interpret is the most important thing. And I think what uh, Origen would say to that is you need this rule that tells you the deeper meaning um, to get into uh, the, the, the deeper truths. Well, that definitely wasn't what I was arguing against in the last show, for sure. Right. I, I, that's certainly not a point that I was contending with. I don't know that that's that definitely seems to be a kind of anachronistic interpretation of, of him. He certainly doesn't seem so because the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox, they look at church teaching and tradition as authoritative in, and I, I don't want to do it injustice, but in a similar way to the Bible. And I don't pick up on anything he's reading to seem to imply that that doesn't mean that he doesn't think it's important, nor does it mean that he would embrace what a Protestant would say in the sense that, you're totally fine with just the Bible. I don't know. But at the same time, I don't know that that's really fair to what Protestants believed anyway. I mean, Luther definitely has this day, Martin Luther does, but he certainly was suspect of people misinterpreting it and felt that there was a requirement for like understanding. But at the same time, he would have seen it as a teacher. Like you need to be instructed by somebody who knows he wouldn't have looked at it as the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox church where they say, no, this is actually part of the authority so what the, what the church says is actually basically on par with the scripture. I haven't seen anything in origin that would imply that. So, yeah, preface uh, chapter two, he does say, we maintain that, on, uh, that that is only to believe, these things are only to be believed as the truth, which in no way conflicts with the tradition of the church and the apostles. This is just above chapter three. Um, so he already has a strong sense of the tradition of the church and the apostles, and from that, he is also going to derive what he takes to be scripture. Tom, uh, Tom's translation said ecclesiastical, um, you know, which just means from the church. It comes from the Greek word for church. And basically how we understand what these people took to be scripture was what they would read in the community. So we'll, be, we'll see a little later on where they'll say things like um, the shepherd of Hermas isn't normally read in the church, um, but Paul's letters are. So those are the scripture. Um, so that's part of it, but he does have a clear sense of the tradition of the church and the apostles is very important to what is correct. Luther would also say something like that as well. So he does say that, but that's not uh, an accurate, that's not saying that the tradition of the church is on par with scripture. He's saying it is in fact in line with what the tradition teaches, which Luther would go absolutely until, of course, on Luther's view, corruption comes in. But. Sure. I, I, yeah, all I was, well, now I kind of feel like should have stepped in earlier. But what I was going to say is I did remember, and I can only see one now, uh, reference to basically something being the teaching of the church where he goes, he'll, he'll explain a doctrine then or appoint a doctrine and say, 
This is also clearly defined as a teaching of the church. But he does always then, at least normally, I saw, quote scripture first. He'll quote scripture first. This is why we believe this doctrine. This is also, you should also believe this because this is like the teaching of the church, which I don't know. So it's a strange, I kind of think it's a strange combo of the two. It's not, I don't know, it's not too one way or another. Maybe, I don't know if it is on par, but it's, it's definitely really important to him that something be the teaching of the church. And oh, that for means, sure. That means something. Mm-hmm. I, but if you've known many Lutherans and Reformed, it is for them, too. They just have this thing where they tend to kind of cut off what counts as the church at Augustine or something along those lines. But And that's why that's what it seems to me he's doing. He goes, here's the authority alone scripture, but also it's consistent with the church, which is just one more reason why we should, the teaching of the church was one more reason why we should believe it. So, uh, we're, we're, we have Ben on here, um, and I might let Ben say a few words. Um, ben tends to enjoy the Eastern Alexandrian writers. That's why we had him on for Clement. Um, we're going to have him on for Origen. Um, Origen is going to be the fountainhead of theology in the East. Uh, Ed, we will talk about this a little bit, but he was condemned uh, as a heretic um, later on. Uh, nevertheless, he was the source of most theology done in the East uh, for a long time. So, uh, I might let Ben say a few words about what he thinks makes Origen distinct and unique um, among early Christian theologians, sort of his peculiar bl- brand of Christianity. I have some thoughts, but but Ben, you want to say a few Before things? you go, factual question, who condemned him? Or when was, or like, how was he condemned? Uh, it's in the 5th century. Um, he was condemned for his view of the soul. Um, it's not a council that the, that the Eastern Orthodox uh, hold any longer, but he is uh, considered... Heretical in the West, I believe I have that right. Actually, it's it's, it's the even the West says no. You're, you're you're right, but even the West is very vague. And if you read the current Catholic position, as you know, the Catholic Encyclopedia says that it was a council that wasn't universal, and that it was. I believe he talked about the redemption that even the devil could be redeemed. He does, yeah. That that was considered. But to be honest, he's considered to be a, a positive influence, although probably not, you know, a, a saint or a doctor on par with some of the early fathers. But Origen is a culmination in early Christian thought, and he's considered by many to be the first true original Christian philosopher um, that has unique and genuine thoughts here. And it seems to be this height of thought in which Christianity is expressed in platonic language uh, with a sense of mastery that hasn't happened before. And so even his uh, critics like Porphyry, the Neoplatonist, can't deny that Origen is just a master of of philosophy. And I think for Christians, as we've talked about before with Clement and so forth, philosophy could be a bit tricky. And um, Paul has his admonitions, it being um, something we need to be wary of, the philosophy of this world. However, when we understand philosophy in its purest meaning to be the love of wisdom and truth, we see that origin is fluent in that language. And, of course, Platonism is the philosophy that he speaks most fluently. And, and Platonism, if we could boil us down to one of the most important analogies we see in uh, Book 6 of Plato's Republic, he does an analogy of the sun being this ultimate one. And from the sun radiates light and it's light that is truth that illuminates the soul, just as the sun illuminates our eyes and gives us vision. So the uh, metaphysical sun uh, illuminates our soul and gives us understanding. And this, this thought pervades much of Origen's writing. 
And of course, the ultimate one is God and, and his emanation or his radiance, as he uh, calls him, quoting Hebrews, is Christ the Son. And to kind of jump in on that idea of interpretation, Origen is um, excellent because he doesn't leave out the Holy Spirit in a lot of his uh, theology. And he shows the Holy Spirit being a central role and being part of the interpretation. Over and over again, he's trying to emphasize that although the letter kills, it's the spirit that brings life, the spirit that brings understanding. And so he doesn't think that it's possible to understand scriptures without the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit becomes a dynamic, active, he says the word living uh, several times with emphasis, a living force to interpret scripture. And it's um, the illumination for us to understand the object, which is Christ and the, the Father. But it's through the spirit that we can understand this. So he, he does an, an amazing job of synthesizing um, Christian thought and expressing that in Platonic language. Yeah, and one thing that's, uh, you know, there, we, one time I mentioned Adolf von Harnack, who's a 19th century German, um, and he actually, he calls, um, well, he, he says that uh, Christianity in, in the Greek uh, East becomes, uh, what, or he says that uh, uh, acute Hellenism. Um, so he talks about how the influence of Greek thought into Christianity, which he thinks is a problem. Um, and so this becomes a bit of a debate uh, later on, but we see in, in origin this strong emphasis um, of the soul and escaping the body, escaping the physical realm. Uh, chapter three, uh, uh, or yeah, chapter three, part eight, at the very end, a fall does not there in, involve utter ruin, but a man may retrace his step and return to his former state and once more set his mind on that through negligence, negligence had slipped through his grasp. And I bring this up to say he looks at the body and the material realm as part of the fall. And, and so he has this view, um, as far as I understand it, that uh, souls uh, were put into the body, fell into the body um, as a kind of punishment almost. Um, and that is how he understands the fall. And this is radically different from Tertullian, um, who does not look at the body as a problem. Um, and does not think that it's bad for God to be a part of the body. And I take this to be a, a maybe one point where Ben and I might have some disagreement or uh, where he, Ben is really has a strong emphasis. Ben likes to look at the emphasis on the soul and the reaching up to God. So Origen also has this view that um, the, the sort of the more spiritual we get, the better we tr like work harder in theology, we, we ascend to God. Well, I have, I have a question real quick. Just, I mean, Clearly, that stuff comes out of his Platonism. I mean, Plato has is terribly suspicious of the flesh, and uh, although t Plato doesn't have a fall narrative in the same way that Christians do, he certainly thinks of the body as something that is an unfortunate thing. Whatever you know, I mean, it's not uh, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly. I mean, I'm not giving a very technical definition there of his view of the body, but just that he thinks it's bad in some sense, although he probably means something different from what we do. But um, I'm kind of curious, and this ties into his Platonism for sure, since Plato definitely believed in the preexistence of the soul, that is, he believed that souls existed um, even before they came into the body. So I was alive, my soul was an existing thing before it was incarnate in my body. And that's what you were saying they condemned um, Origen for, Correct. Yep. that he believed in something like that, a pre-existence of the soul. Now, yep. I, so as I was reading this, he mentioned something like that, but then, and this kind of kills two birds with one stone, because 
I feel like another criticism of Origen is that he denies that Jesus is eternal. And what I've, I mean, the stuff I've read makes it pretty clear, I think, that he says Jesus is eternal, that there was never a time when Jesus did not exist. He's the wisdom of God. And he says the Father, in a sense, like, is prior to Jesus. But he says to say that Jesus, or maybe Jesus is the wrong term, I should say the word or the wisdom, which will become incarnate as Jesus. He says to say that there was a time when the wisdom didn't exist would be to say that there was a time when God wasn't wise. Or to say that there was a time when the son did not exist is to say that there's a time when God was not a father. And he goes, so, I mean, it's like, it's as clear as day there in my mind, but, but also with the preexistence thing. And I've been looking for it. Maybe one of you guys can help me. I think it was in chapter three. um, And I thought it was around section three when he's talking about the, the unbegotten souls. I thought one of his arguments was that pre-existent or at least eternal pre-existence among souls cannot happen because only God, the father and the son uh, and the spirit can be eternal in that sense. So it has to do with the timeline. So, okay. yeah. So I think souls are, they're not God created. They are created, but not um, unbegotten in the same. Oh, time. gotcha. Okay. So they're not eternal, but they existed before they came into the body. Right. Okay, well, I don't necessarily, I don't agree with that, but that doesn't bother me terribly in the same way that the other would. Well, yeah, yeah, for I, sure. I, mean, I definitely disagree with it, don't get me wrong, but that, I, I think a lot of Christians, I, I think in general Christians don't think a lot about when the soul is formulated, you know what I mean? I mean, I, our tendency is to say that it's formulated upon birth, I suppose, but... I just feel like that's not something we've considered a lot of. In a real general sense, this just reminds me of any philosopher in any age, how they often have a philosophy, but they also, you know, have this pretty strict um, collection of doctrines, I guess is one way to say it, that they, they know they must hold to. And so they often will just say things that are logically coherent with that. And I do find it strange that, yeah, I don't know, he was condemned for a weird reason because, I mean, it's it's just part of his philosophy. And perhaps we, we don't agree with it now and we're kind of like in the future looking back, thinking about it from our tradition now. But in all reality, I mean, people are still doing this kind of thing. And I don't know, if maybe if the church is the same way, they'd be condemning Peter Van Inwagen for being a physicalist or something because his metaphysics, you know, makes him think that people are only bodies, but he's just trying, but he still makes it, you know, and then he finds a way to jam it in with the doctrine and make his, basically his philosophy consistent. So I, yeah, this guy's like a proper philosopher and he, he did this work and yeah, as you said, you're kind of like, well, I mean, it doesn't really bother me. And it's because when you really get down to it, I mean, it's not technically contradicting anything, really. It's just more like it's an issue of when we were created. Yeah, so when our souls and were we can, and that's up to debate, I think, in house, you know. But he, he as a philosopher, if he holds this other thing just based on philosophy because he thinks it's a good principle of philosophy, well, then yeah, he's got good reasons for thinking that. Yeah, so. So Ben, do you want to say something about uh, how you know you understand origin of, uh, in his relationship to the body? Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> funny thing is, funny thing is. Every time you said, I want to get Ben in, he's like about to talk. And then you're like, Ben, why don't you tell him? <laughs> no, it's, it's good because uh, when Tom was talking, I appreciate because Tom just brought up a, a perspective that is 
very common and, and um, defendable in a lot of Christian circles. But I have to admit, I'm quite confused by it. And he said, for example, that um, it's the Platonist tradition brings in or something to the effect of introduces this condemnation of the flesh. And, um, and then he, he then spoke of the, the body a bit. And I want to start off by saying in the New Testament, the body and flesh are used differently. And so I don't, I don't want to make those interchangeable, but let, let's just stick with the flesh for one moment. The flesh is, I mean, flesh and blood. We're talking about material, you know, or however you want to say it. And that is an extremely, uh, it's extremely negatively portrayed in the New Testament. I mean, every time you see the flesh, it's negative. I mean, dozens of times. And so it confuses me a little bit as to why people think that's like a foreign uh, introduction. Now, th- here's, the, here's the big deal. Gnosticism, um, as I understand it, said that anything material partakes of evil. And of course, that would be heresy to Christianity because Christ definitely partook of human nature. And he, by the way, he did have flesh, but that did not mean that he partook of evil. Origen wouldn't say that uh, he partook of evil either, but the flesh is the source of temptation and it's the will submitting to the flesh that is the um, source of evil. So it's, it's flesh is so infinitely inferior to spirit that us as a soul, that's what, what we are essentially, we can choose the spirit or the flesh. If instead of the spirit, we choose the flesh, what we're doing is becoming radically degenerated. And that's the, the, what I believe is very consistent with Christianity that's very platonic as well. The Gnostic extremity is just saying, by the very uh, nature of partaking in any flesh, you're already evil. And that's, that's of course, not Christian. And I wouldn't, uh, Origen wouldn't say that either. But um, he's trying to emphasize the superiority, the, the infinite superiority of the spirit. And so when he's talking about scriptural interpretation, he's almost kind of asking the question, why do you care so much about like a literal physical interpretation? Don't you understand that this is speaking to your spirit directly? Like there's a spiritual message here. So if it's telling you something to do physically, great, but that's only going to profit the physical. That might profit the body. Here's some, uh, the gospel will profit your soul, will profit the spirit. So you must understand it spiritually. And that's, um, as Chad emphasized, kind of this Eastern emphasis, perhaps more of the mystical and metaphysical emphasis. Well, I'm totally, I'm totally good with what you just said, Ben. I don't, I think for, and the truth is, and this is why I kind of, for lack of a better term, stuttered through what I was saying about Plato's view of the body. Uh, I don't even, to be honest, know that Plato has as negative a view of the body as we often have led on in our conversations. I mean, I think that's a reputation he gets. To be honest, I have, even though I've read plenty of Plato, it's not like I've sat down and tried to systematically work out what he means by the body versus the spirit. I mean, obviously I know what he means by a body, but I mean, I haven't tried to systematically work out in what ways he thinks the flesh is bad. Because I certainly think that scripturally, there's obviously a lot of negative connotations that come on with the flesh. I feel like for me, I only want to make a fairly humble thesis, which is that, which you've already agreed to, which is that matter doesn't need to be intrinsically evil. It's created by God. Nonetheless, I agree with everything, all, I mean, all of those points. And the, to be honest, I don't know where Plato would line up on all that stuff because uh, I, I just haven't read at least a systematic enough mm-hmm. kind of thing. Same thing with uh, some of these guys on the flesh and on the spirit. Mm-hmm. I think same thing, I'd say. There's a, another just quick point is this was, this was a big deal for Plato, but this is probably also a big deal for Origen as a principle of philosophy as well because of the way they think of cause and effect. 
and how substances can interact. Um, he, he believes that the substance needs to be the same. For example, for him to remember God or to know things of God, he's got to have some sort of spiritual thing. And then now just by common sense, imagine this. So he's so you're thinking of what a person's made of, and he goes, well, God's spirit, so wait, we need a spirit in order to even interact with them. So now he's just, this is just straight logic. He's like, oh, so now kind of just, which one's more elevating your mind? It's already that thing that's part of you that lets you interact with God. Yeah. I mean, just naturally, that's going to elevate that part of humans in, in your brain. So in just a real, like, bare bones, even logical, I guess, mechanical kind of way, he's thinking of it like, well, we've got cause and effect, and we've got these things interacting. Oh, so, well, yeah, so the spirit. And so it's going to come across, yeah, as I guess, I don't know, now we use these words like Eastern and stuff, but I, I always think of it now. It's like, no, this is just, he's just trying to do good philosophy. And for his time, the, the academic milieu was Plato, yeah. you know? So this is, this makes sense. And I think, I think we can all agree, this dude's a good philosopher. Oh, and yeah, exactly. And when, so when I'm reading this, I'm just like, dang, yeah, he's okay. right on. I mean, so- Real quick, the reason that we continue to call him Easter, that's partly my fault, uh, but I'm... That's okay. I I just meant, like, yeah, anyway, I just mean, like, it weirdly really jives with, like, Western analytic thought, though, even, in, in the sense that how the thought pattern goes, at least. Just because he's a philosopher in general, obviously. But, yeah, you know. Anyway, continue. So, yeah, so I just want... Part of what I want to do with this study, as we go chronologically, I want us to to see the unique differences um, within each area of philosophy, how they build on each other and how they show us different elements of the Christian faith. So with Tertullian, you know, he goes to great lengths and on the flesh of Christ to talk about each way in which Christ was absolutely human and why there's nothing um, upsetting about that uh, at all. Whereas origin, if you look in chapter four, he talks about fall, the fall again as well. And, and this is kind of in the, towards the end of the first, uh, part uh chapter four part one he says all rational creatures who are incorporeal and invisible if they become negligent gradually sink to a lower level and take to themselves bodies suitable to the regions into which they descend that is to say first ethereal bodies and then aerial and when they reach the neighborhood of the of the earth they are enclosed in gross bodies and last of all are tied to human flesh it is a mark of extreme negligence and sloth for any soul to descend and to lose its own nature so completely as to be bound in consequence of its vices to the gross body of one of the irrational animals. So I bring that up. This is part of the what's called the transmigration of the souls uh, for origin. This is also just derived, as we've been talking about, pretty much from Plato, from the Phaedrus, in fact. Um, and what we... What I, why I bring this up because this is where you get the idea that the bodies are bad. Um, and this is why people start to interpret Plato that way. Whether or not it's correct, we can discuss. But this is the kind of thing um, where it's a lower descent. Now, the animals are the worst. Humans are a little better. Um, but, but spirits, angels, you know, and basically um, Origen goes to great lengths to explain that um, this is part of our punishment, basically, is to have a body. Um, because we made some bad choices. I mean, if we made worse choices, we would be animals or we'd be demons. Um, and it's it's sort of, and whereas demons, like I would, go ahead. Demons without a body? Well, yeah, I mean, that's what he says, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Uh, but um, 
But, but basically, um, this is where I would contend with it insofar as in Genesis, God created humans good. Um, God created the world good. And I just think that any emphasis that's so deni- – or any uh, position that so denigrates the body to that effect um, is potentially bad. And so Ben alluded to this. Um, in Scripture, especially in Pauline writings, you see a d- differentiation between the body and the flesh. And the body – is good. Um, the body is redeemed, soma, the Greek word, whereas flesh, sarks, that is the bad part. So as I look at it, it's not whether or not the body is bad or good. The body is neutral. Um, and I don't know that Ben would disagree with this, but nevertheless, I'm just going to say it. I think that origin would, um, and, um, and which is that the body is not bad. Christ comes to redeem the body in addition to redeeming the soul. And both of those, I believe, will be resurrected. And the church's teaching has always been that the body will be resurrected, not just the soul pulled out of its body, which seems to be Origen's view, um, which is that what resurrection means is returning to God in the soul, not in the body. Okay, yeah, this is this is good. And again, part of the discussion here is articulating these views that are very common and very defensible. If we could articulate the platonic and, and originistic understanding of the body, it's absolutely inferior. Um, however, part of the sting or tension can be removed a bit when we're saying it's not that the body or even the flesh for that matter has to be so evil, but the platonic understanding of it would be that it's just so utterly less existent just as a shadow is less existent than the object which is casting it as famously put forward in the uh, republic so origin says quote this is in um one four god is a spirit and they who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth uh quoting the new testament origin continues and observe how logically he has joined together spirit with truth he called god a spirit that he might distinguish him from bodies he named him truth to distinguish him from a shadow or an image. And of course, he's using platonic language right there. And his point is simply that it's not that a shadow is evil. It's just like, if you're focused on a shadow, you've missed the whole purpose. And a, a modern day analogy that's really helped me understand this is like having an avatar or a Facebook page. It's like, that, that's, that's a representation of you. And by no means is a Facebook page evil. But if that's how you come to be known, and that's how you're identified, and that's you come to identify yourself with an image of yourself, you might even say that as a shadow. That's the problem is um, the real you is so much richer and fuller. And he'd say, look, your soul is what's so important. Uh, Jesus even says, pluck out your eye, get rid of the, the physical. It's the soul which matters so much more. And so you're right to say Origen isn't super concerned about the bodily um, resurrection. Although I think a, a deep study of Paul's talk on that in Corinthians, First Corinthians um, he speaks of heavenly bodies versus earthly bodies and one's perishable and one's unperishable. And he's, Paul seems to have a little bit of a hint that let's, it's not quite as material as we might emphasize. Yeah, actually just to kind of piggyback off of that. Now, mind you for our audience, I'm like my views on this stuff are identical with Chad's. And that's not to say that I'm in disagreement with Ben. I feel like I haven't honestly talked about this enough with Ben to know exactly where Ben's at, and I certainly don't know Origen well enough to, to be able to systematically speak about uh, his thoughts on this subject. But I definitely am in complete agreement with Chad, but just as Ben was giving that discourse there, it made me think about that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul has, is having a discussion 
and somebody is challenging his notion of the resurrection and is basically saying, if we're resurrected, then what are our bodies like? And then Paul uses this amazing analogy where he says, foolish one, do you not know that what is sown is not what comes up? That when you, when you plant, a, like when you're sowing in the field, you put seeds and the seed goes into the ground, but what comes up is something that is magnitudes greater. Right. And so you put in a seed, but what comes up is a plant that is way bigger and of a different sort. And then, and this is what Ben just referenced. He says, we are sown an earthly body, but we're raised a heavenly body. And I believe Chad, help me if I'm wrong here, but I believe when he says sown an earthly body, the word he uses is psychikos. Is that correct? Which is a, the word where we get soul psyche from We're, we're, it's almost like he's saying we're sowed a soulish body. And then he says, and we're raised a pneumaticos, which is, comes from the word neoma, which means spirit. So we're raised, we're sown a soulish body, and we're raised a spiritual body. Now, I have no point other than that's an interesting use of terminology. And it does, it sheds some, I don't want to say doubt. It makes me go, hmm. I don't know exactly what our resurrected body, which I believe will be a body. I don't know that I'm very confident in terms of what he's saying there is in terms of what it'll be like. I guess that's, I guess yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah, that's awesome. That Just one last tag on that. I've always found it fascinating. And I, as Tom's saying, I'm not even sure about what this means, but when Paul's given this discourse, he says, Christ appeared to the disciples, the apostles, the 70. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me speaking of the resurrected Christ. Well, how did he appear to Paul? It was as a light on the road to Damascus. That's literally how he appeared, and, and a sound, of course. And I've always thought that was fascinating that Paul claims to have seen the resurrected Christ, not differentiating it from the resurrected Christ to the uh, apostles. Mm. And yet it's the road to Damascus vision that Paul's referring to, which, read the scriptures thoroughly, there's never a, um, a bodily image presented to him, but simply the, the blinding light. What do you think, Chad? He was uh-huh. blind. We are far away from origin here. Um, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, uh, imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. So I have no problem saying um, this is uh, this is first Corinthians 1553. Um, I have no problem saying that. um what Paul Paul is talking about an immoral body that there's some change that is going to happen. Um, if Christ is only resurrected in the spirit and not in the flesh, we are dead in our sins, <laughs> um, and that seems to me to be what Paul is saying. And so I, it, to, I mean, like that's why this is so important to me is I think our bodies are raised now. Are they raised in the same form that we are in now? No. Do I believe that we could be cremated and God would raise us imperishably? Yes. Um, but I think that the whole point of like Romans 8, for all creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth and the, the use of the term sarks versus soma, um, the use of the term flesh versus body, is Paul saying that there's, there's bad flesh and there's good body. There's bad soul, sukike, and there's good soul, pneumatike, and they have to do with what is redeemed. And I believe that Christ physically, bodily resurrected, and we will physically, bodily resurrect in perfection um, because Christ has completed his work. And Christ is our preview. I mean, he was the firstborn among the dead. And yeah, he, he came and he ate food and he touched people. 
people touched him. And, and that was important. Yeah, it was very important. Yeah. And the tomb was empty. So, yeah, I, I think that is important to, to Christianity as well. Ben? Yeah, I think my, my only point there, because I'm in 100% agreement with you, Chad. I mean, I'm very passionate even about that. But it, I think my only point was is that I think there's vagaries that surround it that make us have to go, oh, yeah. I don't know exactly you know, what this all means. And I think maybe you could line up a little more. I mean, I know you could. You could. I mean, as Christians, like you have a C.S. Lewis, he lines up a little more Plato, and you have N.T. Wright, he lines up a little more physicalist, right? Right. I mean, I feel like both are very acceptable. C.S. Lewis, even his, you know, he like in his book The Great Divorce, where he talks about heaven. Sometimes I wonder if C.S. Lewis even. I know he believes in a resurrection, yeah. but he just never talks about it. But in the in his book The Great Divorce. The beings that are, I presume, resurrected, they're the ones in his heaven. He calls them spirits. And I think that he's trying to use that First Corinthian language. And I think he would say, yeah, they're resurrected. But I think he just has a different concept. That, uh, and, and, and you and I do too, Chad. I mean, we have a different concept of what our, resur- our resurrected bodies are bodies. And the flesh is redeemed. But I don't know exactly what that means or looks like. I guess that's my only, the only thing I was bringing bring it up there. Um, I wanted to talk about what does it mean for uh, uh, Origen to be a universalist? So this is another charge that's often brought against him. Um, And what makes him a universalist? How does that work? Um, Anybody want to throw out a few thoughts on that? Sure. One quick thought is his fascinating scheme here of the body, mind, and uh, spirit, or I should say body, soul, and spirit is he links that theme to God, the Son, and the Spirit, saying that God is the sustainer of all things that exist. So anything material, whether it's a rock, a plant, an animal, or a human, that's part of what that partakes of God because God is I am, He is the existence. Now, rational beings partake of the logos, the reason. And so he believes all rational creatures partake of logos. And I know this is slightly different than some um, understandings of universalism. But I always thought that was fascinating that he linked rationalism with partaking in uh, the sun and that um, they're interacting with that. But then he differentiates the spirit being only for the saints and that not everyone has the spirit, whereas all, all humans, he would believe, do have uh, rationalism within them, the reason, perhaps even the logos within them. And now, hey, can I interrupt you real quick? Yeah. I'm sorry. Only because this is the first time with our audience, I mm-hmm. think we've ever broached the subject of universalism. Okay. And so just to point out to our audience, I think a simple, like a real quick, just overly simplistic uh, interpretation of the word universalism, like what that means is to basically believe that everybody goes to heaven in some sense, but there are different versions of universalism. Like, there are a lot of different ways you can take that. And so, Ben, I'm sorry, I cut you off. Go ahead and thank you. No, no feel free to. I just didn't want us to get us too far down that rabbit trail without, or not that rabbit trail, but down that line of thinking without our audience being aware of what that's what we're addressing. Yeah, sure. So that's that's a tough thing. What does that even mean to yeah. be universal? Uh, to what extent does salvation extend? And he has a nuanced position. I was just trying to lay a framework of how we interact with God and that he's not doubting that people can interact with God. I mean, all creation is of God as you guys were pointing out. Um, in fact, rational creation is interacting with the, the Son, Christ, as the Logos, reason. Um, however, the Spirit 
is only interacting with the saints, the, the holy select. And again, this is very important. His um, going back to the very beginning of his interpretation of scripture is done through the spirit. And so he believes that that is, is part of a correct interpretation is, is through the spirit. Mm. Yeah, I mean, he ultimately even believes, our, uh, this is 8.3, our opinion is not even the devil himself was incapable of good. Um, and, and so his view of universalism, as I understand it, um, really comes out in chapter 6, 2, for the end is always like the beginning. As therefore there is one end of all things, so we must understand there is one beginning of all things. Uh, and let's see, um, which in turn are restored, all things are restored through God's goodness through their subjection to Christ and their unity with the Holy Spirit to one end, which is like the beginning. Now, he will go on to say that they are sub- subjects. So part of, you know, those that are in tune with the soul, as Ben was elucidating, as Ben was explaining, uh, there are those who will return quicker, sort of, to God. But but basically what Origen believes is that at the very end of all things, because God is so powerful and because everything was created good, um, that all things will, in fact, um, return. Well, actually, I should even qualify that. I'm not even sure that he's committed to that all things necessarily will. He says that it's he, – he sort of is working out his principles and saying, I could see how because God creates everything good, and as Philippians 2 says, all things will be subject to Christ, that all things can return to Christ. I don't know that it's a necessity uh, for him, that it must happen this way, um, which is still the view of the Greek Orthodox Church, actually. Um, but yeah, I, mean, I feel like there's a lack of clarity from Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you. I've done that twice now. Uh, do you have anything else to add? Well, yeah, just, just that. So, and it's not that things aren't punished, and it's not that everybody just escapes um, and can do whatever they want. Um, they must be sort of forcibly subjected to God if, and, and there's some punishment and trial and difficulty, um, but they sort of hold out hope um, that all will return to God in the end. Yeah. I, that's kind of what I felt. I, I, I felt like anywhere where he talked, where he said things that pointed towards a universal salvation with nobody ultimately ending up in hell or whatever you want to, you know, whatever, you, whatever kind of judgment he might've been envisioning, um, I felt like he was non-committal. Like I, I feel like you can read it and not walk away mm-hmm. necessarily believing he was a universalist. Mm-hmm. And I was especially confused because if you go back to the um, preface when he lists that that rule of faith, Chad, um, mm-hmm. back in point five, he says, after these points also, the apostolic teaching is that the soul, having a substance and life of its own, shall, after its departure from the world, be rewarded according to its deserts, being destined to obtain either an inheritance of eternal life and blessedness, if its actions have shall have procured this for it, or to be delivered up, and here's the key phrase, to eternal fire and punishments, if the guilt of its crime shall have brought it down to this. So he actually includes the potential of eternal fire and punishment for the unfaithful as part of the regula fide. Um, so I was a little confused because he certainly later on has this implication that souls might work it out after death. They might work out a way to attain back, to come back to God. He seems to, he seems to be saying that if, if, if he's not committed to it, he at least says it's possible. He at least says that's a possible course of events. Yeah, the way I read it, and correct me if I'm wrong, was that he basically, because of holding on to 
two points thinks that you can end up having a sort of maybe second chance type universalism where it's after you die you choose God. And the two points I mentioned were your wickedness, the way the way he would say it is your wickedness did not precede your essence, or basically you were you were you you came into existence without your wickedness wickedness. Right. And also you have free will. And he and he takes that sense of free will like very seriously. And so I think because of those two things, because you're not like created, destined for evil, and because you do have free will and you can choose what you want, it sounds like he's like almost just hopeful for second chance universalism, sort of is what I, I call it. I, I don't know if that's a real thing. I think an unfortunate flip side of that line of reasoning though yeah. would be that you could fall when you're blessed. Yeah. Right? That you could once you get eternal salvation and you are in heaven, if he wants to hold this and follow it through and say, look, a person who's in hell could nonetheless repent, which C.S. Lewis kind of embraces that to a certain degree. Great divorce. Or something like that loosely in Great Divorce. Uh, you have this converse, which is, but as a blessed person in the resurrection in heaven, if that same kind of freedom maintains, then we would be free to fall away and think, thus go to hell, I guess. I, I think perhaps maybe he would, this is maybe where his Platonism would affect that though, because he does think your spirit and God is spirit. I think maybe he's, I think he's kind of more in line with like, you're like pretty awesome. And then you can become wicked. You can become a wicked soul or a wicked spirit, but like your natural tendency is going to be like, you're going to want God. And so it's sort of the, in fact, it's kind of the opposite of, it sounds to me at least, this is a sense I got, so you guys can disagree or tell me I'm wrong here, but I got a sense it was almost the opposite of total depravity in a lot of ways. Like it's, yeah. the, total, it's the total opposite of Reformed theology. And, and I haven't, yeah. I, I don't know that I've mentioned David Bentley Hart yet on this uh, podcast, but he's a contemporary uh, Orthodox theologian who, sorry for those of you out there, but he despises Reformed theology. Um, and basically it's because he embraces originism Toot court. Um, I mean, just okay. all the way through. All right. I'm glad I wasn't completely off the mark then. Uh, ben, do you have any thoughts on the uh, universalism aspect here? Uh, just, yeah, briefly. Um, it's partly that, you know, all that is, you know, partakes of God. And it's, it's that evil is the deprivation of the good, which is platonic and it's so important. And so I, I think his point, um, and even Lewis kind of has this in um, – talking about the souls fading out. It's, it's almost the annihilation view where, I mean, if you're, if you really have no good in you or no, nothing left in you, you cease to be. And so it's, it's like, um, when we speak of evil things, we're really talking about something good that's become corrupted, but unless it has some virtue in it, then, it, um, then it's almost non-existent. And so I think that as a rational soul, you're still partaking of God and, and, and even the logos reason in a sense. Um, but if you become so irrational that, there is no rationality at all. Then it ceases to be a soul. It's just, it's literally disintegrated. It's no longer a cohesive whole. And that, that's the kind of the uh, annihilation view. So I, I kind of got that feel a little bit in, in origin that um, that's, that's almost becoming what matter uh, would be like. That's like the annihilation of the soul. Um, whereas the opposite is becoming more ethereal and, and more of the, the spirit. So yeah, it's, it's kind of mysterious, but I think Tom's right to say he, he can be very clear on certain things and saying this is kind of how it is. 
but I like Origin precisely because he goes, this is a little bit more speculative and I'm going to kind of explore some ideas. And he, he does seem to leave it a bit open, which is very interesting. Yeah, I think that's the exact right way to phrase it. And that's why I introduced the preface first, because he, se- he seems to say that in the preface, this is the stuff you have to get. The rest of what I'm going to do is me just working some stuff out. I mean, he's just writing like, maybe this is how to explain it. Maybe this. Um, and it seems that he's just tossing it about and, and not holding stuff that must be believed by all Christians for all times. I'm so sympathetic to Origin. I feel like yeah. I feel like he's my boy. Like not in the sense that I necessarily agree with him on all things by any means, but in the sense that that's what I feel like I'm doing. I have this regular fide, if I will, a rule of faith. These things that I feel like I believe and have to believe, and that I teach repeatedly to people because I want them to either a become Christians or b as Christians continue in these doctrines. But then the rest is me working it out. And I feel like as Christians, we should be able to work it out like he does. I mean, to be able to sit here and to wrestle through these and to to ask a lot of hypothetical questions, what ifs, and Mm -hmm. if this is true, then what, you know, that kind of a thing. And and I think it's super unfortunate, having read this, because I I think all of us can kind of do a thumbs up on origin. Am I wrong on that? No, totally Uh, right. I feel like like it's super unfortunate that Christians have kind of given him a little bit of a negative – like, I, I feel like he has just a, neg- a bad reputation amongst Christians. And, I, like, I know I've talked to a few people who are in leadership at some churches, and I've, they, they're always asked, when are you doing Origin? When are you doing Origin? And I almost get the sense of it's like, oh, well, we can't wait to tune in on that because we all know Origin is a heretic. You know what I mean? Like, it's almost like one of those things where it's like we want to hear Origin beaten up. But, yeah. like, uh, honestly, I mean, I'm I'm with him on this stuff. And, 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 and again – because we really didn't talk much about it, but just to drive home the point, I feel like he is completely committed to an eternal Jesus, which I've heard is a a big criticism against him. I don't know. People say that Arius got his ideas from origin, but I don't, I can see where some of the terminology came from in Arius, but origin is committed to an eternal son of God. Yeah. Yeah. That's excellent. Just to jump in real quick on that. That's exactly what I was thinking as I read this, how clearly he was refuting statements from Arius. Um, There was a time he refutes clearly that there was um, never a time when Christ was not. And that's what Thomas, when I read that, I'm like, that was the number one thing Arius got in trouble for that phrase. And origin is clearly opposed to that. So one, I mean, this is going to put a wrench into this a little bit. The reason that people have believed that about origin has to do with the fact that we own in the, uh, on first principles, we have a Latin translation of the Greek original. Now, where we still preserve some Greek, it is printed in the translation. So um, everything has to sort of be subjected to the fact that it was translated later after the Nicene Creed. Um, and so some of what is translated may or may not be the translator's trying to make origin a little bit more in line uh, with the Nicene Creed. Now, I only bring that up not to say that all the stuff that we've just said is is wrong. It's just something you have to consider. Yeah. I was, I was thinking that as I was reading this because it was a little bit too perfectly phrased. I'm like, That's very neat. That tidies that up very well. That is true. That is so true because origin is not writing in a world with Aryans. Yeah. So he shouldn't be so concerned to make sure yeah. that people know what he means on that. It's true. That's fair enough. It's a fair criticism. I'm going to choose 
<laughs> to continue to believe that what I'm reading is what he said. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it goes to it goes to show you that uh, Jerome is one of the big ones, as Ben has already mentioned. Rufinus's translation—that's the name of the man who translated it. Um, but it just goes to show you that these guys read him. They, these are both Latin guys, Rufinus and, uh, and Jerome, who thought that there was so much good in in Origin. Um, that it was worth preserving um, and that it was worth, I mean, at least trying to understand him in their own way as charitably as possible um, and not letting him be um, condemned to heresy. And so, I mean, whether, you know, from a strictly like, is this exactly what he said? Well, you know, we could have a whole conversation about translation. Nevertheless, it shows you something about the view of the people of the period um, that he said good things that you, you basically were worth preserving. Um, in, in a different language so that more could read him. And you have to listen to Jerome. He's one of the doctors of the church. Mm-hmm. We have to, well, <laughs> we're not Catholics. I guess we don't have to, but <laughs> but everybody respects the guy. Yeah. And in, in the councils and debates leading up to Nicaea, a lot of the guys said, look, we're not Arians. Arius was some priest. They go, we're originists. And, and a lot of the debate was actually with the bishops, such as Eusebius of Nicomedia of Caesarea, identifying as originists, and they, they loved him. You see, Caesarea seems to have genuinely loved uh, Origen as a, as a teacher um, from afar, um, and so I appreciate that we could find some positive stuff to discuss. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're going to – I guess we're running low on time. I mean yeah, – we got to go. Sorry, I've got to leave, yeah. I mean, hey, I, what are we- I was just going to say, I like Origen, um, and I like reading him. I would – I mean, I don't want to just to- – I mean, I think that, that I can learn as – I don't know that what I learn about God through my body has to be less than what I can learn about him through my rational soul. Um, so, you know, as a point of emphasis, I still um, – you know, I like reading the Hebrew narrative that so um, emphasizes how we learn about God through our bodies um, and through creation. And, I mean, I'm not a strict naturalist. I mean, this is the other reason in the West that people don't like him. Um, he's not giving a natural theology, uh, you know, a la St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, you know, that is is far from what he is up to, um, you know. And and so that would be one reason in the West where we've had this lesser view of origin because we're so tinged um, in our influence from from the Latin doctors, um, who, who have a more natural theology, um, what we can learn about God from creation first and foremost. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with book two of Origins on First Principles.